What a blessing to be in the presence of God. So, I want to talk about God and how He works among us. Because you and I need a firm foundation to know what God wants done. It helps a lot if you know where you're going. It just helps a lot in life if you know where you're going. The most difficult places for us to live is when we don't know where we're going. Or you feel lost. I, I've been driving somewhere and suddenly realized I don't know where I'm at. And uh, Rachel and I went into a craw because I was going to conquer the capital of Ghana. The streets were laid out in circles. Little circles, big circles, graduating out. And so I didn't know that because I grew up in Denver where things are laid out straight and you have mountains to the west. You can't get lost in Denver because the mountains are always there and they're even lit at night. And so uh, you can't get lost. You know what north is, you know what south is, and so you, you've got all these references. And so I was going to conquer this city because it was very difficult for me to find my way in. I had people that took me in. And then they took me out, and I thought I memorized the pathway. And I was fooled into believing that, because when I went in to conquer the city, it conquered me. And after hours and hours of driving, I finally stopped and asked somebody where the beach road was, because there's a road that ran from Accra back to Tama along the beach. And so that's what I was looking for. Anyway, it was the ocean. I figured I'd drive long enough, I will run into the ocean. I will know which side of the city I'm on. But I kept driving in circles, but nothing changed because every circle I got into looked the same as the last circle. The buildings looked the same. The people looked the same. People waved to me several times, always looking the same. I told Rachel, I think I'm going to have to find out from somebody where the beach road is. Indeed, I did. But once I got involved in that city and, and found places that I went to, and went back from, because I was very diligent just to go in and come back, I began to learn my way in and out. And that made all the difference. And so I could spend time looking around. And we need that in our life. We need to be able to get from where we're at to where God wants us to go. So we want to know really ultimately what His plan is for our life. So we've talked a little bit about it every time we've got together. His plan is to perfect the church. He gave us an example of the four faces of Jesus in Ezekiel. And I talk about this all the time. Because we talk about end time things, but we talk about it absent of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you can't talk about anything without the revelation of Jesus Christ. His disciples, one of the last things they asked Him while He was physically among them was, when will these things be? When will your kingdom come? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has laid up. But he said, go in, wait on the Holy Spirit. You'll be endowed with power from on high. Because he wasn't asking them to talk about the restoration of Jerusalem. He didn't call them to talk about the restoration of their country. He called them to talk about him. He was the focus of the events. If he told them, well, actually, you guys, here's the thing. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's at least going to be 1,948 years. 
before you guys even have this city, this, this kingdom. And then it ain't going to be a kingdom. And then it's going to be not until 1967 that you actually get the city of Jerusalem back. How would that be? 1,967 years. Ron Risley will have been able to graduate from high school if he chose to. In that length of time. You understand that? 1,967 years. Who wants to think that their nation is going to be destroyed 1,967 years? And that their people are going to be void of the credible uh, covenant of God because men who taught them astray will continue to keep them astray from God. And that's why I go back to the four faces of Jesus because Ezekiel in chapter 1 saw him as a man. Indeed, he was going to be a man. The Messiah was going to be a man. And he saw him as a lion. Indeed, he's going to be the king. The lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to open the book. Then he saw, of course, the ox. And the ox is the servant. And Paul said, that ministry is worthy of its hire. He said, and he uses the ox in the Old Testament. He said, you see, God said, muzzle not the ox that treadeth the corn. He's worthy to eat the corn. If he's, if he's grinding the corn and turning the circle, then let the corn that falls in his pathway, let him eat it. Don't muzzle him. So Paul said, did God say that because of the oxen or for the ministry's sake? Isn't that interesting that he could read that about the ox and God say, this is actually about my ministries? So the ox was a picture of the perfect ministry. Jesus was going to be the perfect ministry. And then he's going to be God. So it's interesting because he was going to be four distinctly visible things. He's going to be a man. So in the garden of Gethsemane, he's going to sweat great drops of blood. But he's going to be God. In the Gospel of John, he sweats nothing. In the Gospel of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's why there are four Gospels. Each Gospel tells me and you one facet of him. Matthew tells you he's going to be the king. And Matthew tells you he's the king. When you're reading through Matthew, Matthew takes you into the place where the, the storm is on the sea and Jesus stands up in the boat and rebukes the wind and the wind dies and the storm lays down and everybody marvels because even the wind obeys him. Then Matthew takes you immediately to Gadaria where it actually wasn't where Jesus was going, but Matthew takes these things and lumps them together. He's not a liar, he's not a deceiver, and he's not trying to fool you, and he doesn't... Uh, have a misunderstanding about what... Thank you so much. You are such a good kid. Good kid. He wasn't confused. What he's doing is telling you two things that happened in the life of Jesus and he runs them together because he's telling you he's king. Because he takes him to the shore and now here's these people bound by demon powers. And these demons ask Jesus, cast us into the swine. And Jesus said, go. And they, they enter into, I don't know, what was it? A thousand, two thousand, three thousand, I don't know, a bunch of swine. And they run down the hill and drown themselves. So he's king over demonic powers. He's king over the spirit world. And he's king over the physical world. He can stop the wind. He can stop the So Matthew tells you that and he runs them concurrently together because he wants to know he's the king. And Mark tells you he's the servant. Mark starts his gospel just by telling you what Jesus did. Tells you very little what he said. John tells you, 20 days in the life of Jesus. His, his ministry lasted 1,260 days. And out of the 1,260 days, three and a half years, John tells you about 20 days. Never tells you about demons. Doesn't mention faith. Doesn't talk about Mary except in passing. But what he does talk to you about is love. The love of God. And he tells you from the beginning. In the beginning is the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. If you're looking for a Messiah in the flesh, look for the Word in the flesh. Look for the truth in the flesh. 
becomes absolute truth. That's what Jesus said. I am truth. So, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. In him is truth. So what happened is he encountered religious people, his own religious people, and they received him not. John tells you that right away. But the reason I say this, you guys, is because our Christianity and our end-time theology is wrapped up in what men want to talk about, and what they don't talk about is the revelation of Jesus, because Jesus came as a servant man, two of the four. Two of the four. He was the Messiah. But he came and was manifested as a man, the Son of Man. He called himself that. And he didn't look perfect because nobody accused him of being perfect. Not one person in the four Gospels accused Jesus of being perfect. They accused him of sin. They accused him of being like people. They said he was a wine-bibber and a glutton. They accused him of having friends with the publicans and sinners. Yeah? But nobody ever accused him of being perfect. See, so God's rendition of perfect and the world's rendition of perfect ain't the same. So I know that the Spirit of God has to bring us into a place that we recognize that these revelations of Jesus are awfully important because he came as a man and he came as a servant man. So he came to serve and he washed the disciples' feet. Now the Bible said he was a king. And you know, it's very hard to be a good servant and be a good king at the same time. Because if you're busy washing people's feet, it's very difficult to lead the kingdom. But he led the kingdom. And here's the thing. He didn't come to Israel as the king Messiah. He did not come to Israel as the king Messiah. In fact, he told Pilate, if these people were my servants, they would rise up and fight to protect me. Israel wasn't rising up to protect him. They didn't know him. They thought he was an imposter. They hated him because his, his theology was different than their theology. See, theology is a, is a terrible dilemma. Because what we believe first is, is easy to hold on to. It's very difficult to change from an from a ideology to a different ideology. Ask the communists. Lenin, Stalin, they killed 34 million Russian people. 34 million of their own people because they couldn't get their mind to accept their new theology. Man is God. Man is God. And man will solve your problems. We could see man don't solve the problems. Man don't solve the problems. And the world is still looking for that utopia where man would rule and God would be gone because God has always been a thorn in the flesh of man as king. Sovereign self-rule. And what God wants is to have us bow our knee because He is king and He is Lord. And in His kingdom there's peace. And there's life everlasting. And in truth, there is rebirth. So, the reason I talk about Israel getting the servant man, they were looking for God Messiah. They were looking for the everlasting Messiah, the God man, the God king. And what they got instead was the servant man, and they weren't looking for a servant man. They didn't even know that the servant man was talked about. And yet the whole Old Testament talks about the servant man. The four faces of Jesus are clear all the way through the Old Testament, but... You guys, the revelation of Jesus is that now the Gentile church is looking for the King Messiah. And yet our New Testament is full of the servant man. Because the Bible said the church is his body. Not just a, a concept, but the church is his body. And it will come into a perfect place of unity around truth. On this earth. And i got to tell you, the reason that it looks impossible is because we've got an adversary that invented lies. 
And he used God's own word to deceive Eve. So he uses the Bible to deceive God's people. So we understand that if you're trusting the Bible to be safe, you'd have to go back to Moses because Moses told God when he's out in the wilderness, God, how will I tell these people you sent me? Because he didn't even know who was sending him, right? He said, well, who, who will I tell them sent me? If you're going to be sent, you really should know who sent you. So God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, I don't think the elders are going to believe me that you sent me. God said, well, what's in your hand, Moses? He said, the rod. Well, that's the word of God. The Bible said that the rod corrects us. Am I right? And Jesus is going to rule the world with a rod of iron. So that's an unbending rod. And here's the thing. He said, what's in your hand? He said, a rod. He said, we'll throw it down. In the hand of the man of God, it was a rod. It was the rod of correction. It was the word of God. It was truth. But out of his hand, it became a serpent. Out of the hand of the ordained man of God or woman, led by the Spirit of God, it became a serpent. Same rod. You understand that, right? It is not infallible in the hands of people who mess with it. And God didn't intend it to be because it's a love letter written in the Spirit. And there are spiritual things that God told us in the Old Testament that were hidden. And Noah's a good story. Noah's, uh, you've heard me talk about this. Uh, because God says, I'm going to destroy all flesh. So, you see that God reduces the flesh just to this man and his sons. And interestingly enough, he's a son of God. Just a mystery. It's, just, it's in the Bible. Then you have Jonah. Jesus said, like Jonah was three days and three nights in the bowels of the earth, so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the, in the earth. Or in the belly of the fish, so must the Son of Man be three nights in the bowels of the earth. So, you guys, that's a hidden message. You get that? And so the devil couldn't mess with the story of Jonah because the story of Jonah had in it all the dynamics of a prophet going astray. But what Jonah told the shipmen, the sailors, was that if I don't die, you will die. I have to die in your place. You throw me over, I will die, you'll be okay. That's what Jesus came to do. So you guys, you understand that Jesus took that story and opened it up for the people to understand. He took it out of its story of Jonah and made it himself. He took the story of the serpent on the pole and made it of himself. If you want to kill your ministry, go into a city, set up a gospel tent, and announce that you are a replication of the serpent on the pole. I just would like you to know that I am that serpent on the pole. People will take off. When I first moved to Lawrence, I got a little building over at the foot of Blue Mound. And the family that owned the mountain had a ski lodge there years before, or ski uh, runs there, and they had a little ski lodge. And so I rented a ski lodge in Kansas. Think how impossible that sounds. <laughs> I want you to know that from the beginning, God understood that this was going to be an uphill deal, and there wasn't going to be much help from nature. So I became the, the possessor of this little uh, ski lodge that I, that I rented. And uh, one day I was in there praying, and nobody had been in there for years much, and uh, there's this big black snake, you know, crawling along. I don't talk to snakes, but it helped me feel better because I'm in a room all alone with a snake, a big snake. And I see this big snake, and I think, you know, you're going to have to kill that snake. Because I'm where the bathrooms are, and somebody's going to leave the sanctuary part and go in here to go to the bathroom. They're going to see the snake, and they're going to decide that it's a sign. 
we're a little superstitious. But when we get superstitious enough, we begin to act ignorant. Ignorant. Because this ski lodge should have a snake in it because they had had mice there. And I was kind of glad it was an offing because, you know, black snakes kill poisonous snakes. I'd much rather have a black snake than a copperhead. I'm just, I don't like any snakes, but I'm preferential to that. So what I know is that God knows how to bring us to a place past the superstitions because Jesus likened himself to stuff that superstitious people would back off from. And some, one day a woman asked, came by the house and she said, can I go to your church and pray? I said, go down to the church and pray. I said, sure, you're fine. And as soon as she drove away, I thought of the snake. And sure enough, she got down there and pretty soon, boom, her car goes by <laughs> blowing dust on the road. Now, this woman looked behind the veneer as much as she could. She was from uh, western Kansas, Hayes, Kansas. And so she, or no, she was from, closer than that, she was from uh, Atwood, Kansas. Yeah, Atwood, Kansas. So she found out that I had lived out in Nebraska, so she went out to Atwood, Kansas, and she found everybody that I talked about to talk about me hoping that she would find something that she could dig up in the past because she trusted ministers before and found out years into the ministering that there was something icky in the closet. So she thought, well, I will, I will beat this rap. So she went up to Kansas and Nebraska and talked to everybody. Man, wow, wow, wow. And she heard things of God. God did great things up there. So then she knew I lived in Arkansas. So she said, can I go down to your house in Arkansas and pray? Sure, I said, you can go down to my house and pray. And she talked to everybody in the area. She gleaned Boone County. And what she found is that I really was what I said I was all the time. People in Arkansas tell. (laughs) And she came back and, and she was satisfied until she met the snake that lived in the building. She was totally satisfied. And then it's like, I'm out of here. I am out of here. It doesn't matter that that God's moved in his life like this. He has a snake in his old building. Yes. I've had a snake in this building twice. Steve and I ran into one. I ran into one upstairs. It was behind the couch. And that's a disconcerting disconcerting moment when I lived here. And so I told Steve, I'm going to go out in the road. You kill the snake. (laughs) No, actually what I told him is I'm going to move the couch. You kill the snake. Did I shoot it or did you? You don't remember. I don't remember. We've had snakes in this building, and I, I just got them out, not because I thought you'd get superstitious, but because I thought it would scare you like it scares me when I see a snake in a building. But we're waiting for the King Messiah, and we should be praying about the servant man. If the church was thinking about the servant man, we would know we need unity, we would need truth, and we would need to come back to the Holy Ghost, which is the spirit of truth and the teacher, yes? And then we would be looking not for the way out any second, but we would be looking for the way to do what God wants to do before He returns. We would understand first things first. He's going to have a church without spot or wrinkle. That's going to be the servant man. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Bible said the church is His body. We are bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh. So where is He? He's up in heaven. Oh, indeed He is. But He's also in us. So He lives in the church. And what He wants to do is He has promised that He's going to bring the church to a unity. 
First Corinthians chapter 15 says he's going to change us in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. We're not, we're not all going to sleep, but we are all going to be changed. Death is going to be overcome by the Spirit and presence of God bringing victory through the church. Not because we have the victory, but because we just kept surrendering and surrendering and surrendering. It wasn't any of us coming around to get perfect. Men think that the perfect ministry would be the guy with the biggest television following and people would adore him. I got news for you. That's not the perfect preacher. That's not even the perfect Christian. And the perfect Christian doesn't have everybody on the block buffaloed into treating her like she is the queen of heaven because everybody knows she is the most important Christian in the neighborhood. She's not that. She's quiet. She's unassuming. And she may show up at your house when you have two people that come into your house off the streets and she just comes up to borrow a cup of sugar because in your house God told her, come tell somebody in that house about Jesus. And then you're going to be like that uh, Sandy, somebody, out of, out of Sandy Brown, yeah. Sitting in somebody's house, and an unassuming neighbor showed up, knocked on the door and said, I came to get a cup of sugar. And then she sat down and talked to Sandy Brown, and Sandy Brown didn't know anything about God. She was a cocktail waitress at the MGM Grand. She tried to commit suicide. She was out of hope, out of Hope out of fuel, had no reason to live, no reason to hope, certainly no direction, and certainly no plan. And she just was at the end of what life was, and it was bitter, and it, she wanted out. And so then she told God, if you're a real God, then you'd have to show me who you are. I don't even know what your name is. She's like Moses. And this woman came in and started talking about Jesus. I came here to tell you about Jesus. So she understood that day, wow, I know his name. I know his name. Now, you guys, that's the beginning. And then she was preaching to people all over the United States and telling the church. And here's the thing. The church was moving her from big meeting to big meeting. And you know what she was telling the Christian church in the 70s? Not one Christian touched my life. I didn't know anything about Christianity. In a city full of churches, I didn't know anything about Christ. It wasn't evangelized. I wasn't evangelized. I didn't know anything about the love of God. Then I was driving down the road and decided to take my life, and God told me, don't. And I went home. I just went home. And I, and I just laid in my bed. And I didn't know what to do. But somehow I felt like I shouldn't kill myself because of my children. I went home, and I didn't know anything about God. And, she, and these churches are all celebrating this woman. But in the middle... Yeah. yeah, yeah, if you're real, who are you? Yeah, yeah. So you guys, here's the thing. And these churches are all, all having their big meetings. It's like, how in the world can you brag that you've got these churches everywhere, and you've got all of this ministry motion going on, and this woman has fallen down where she doesn't even know who, the, who God is in a nation that should be Christian. Yes. Yes. And they should have caught on. Wow, we have failed. They didn't do that. They wanted her to be the big evangelist. They wanted her to tell her story about how God brought her from being a cocktail waitress at the MGM Grand to be able to tell Christians, you need a real experience with God. You guys, that's how far it was in the 70s. This is the year 2017. This country has moved off the edge and into the darkness. And what we need is to recognize that God has a plan, and that is to bring the church to perfection so that the world can see Jesus. Not big preachers, not important people, not us better than the other people, but God important. 
God real. And if there's a woman down the street, God will get you up until you go down the street and ask for a cup of sugar and then tell the woman sitting there about me, who I am. That's God. That's what we need from God. And that's what the Spirit and presence of God is doing in us because He's going to come as the King Messiah. He's going to drop down out of the sky just like the Bible said He is. But what He's going to do first is perfect the church because He said He can. And men say He can't. They finally found, preachers have found something God cannot do. He cannot perfect His own church. He cannot bring His people above sin. They're always going to be bound by sin when He created Adam perfect. He created him without sin. That's what every father wants, is to have a son that doesn't have uh, the dominion of sin over his life. So, I want to, I want to talk just a second. Actually, I have three minutes before 12, so we'll talk several seconds. Genesis chapter 1 starts with the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Great beginning. But for the flesh, it would look as though it was a disastrous beginning. Because God created mankind, then He made a son, and He put that son, Adam, in the garden. And He gave this man the crowning glory of being over all of His creation. And it looked like that was exactly what God was after, except that God knew that the man wasn't tested. The man was perfect, but he was innocent. Okay? He's perfect, but he's going to be easily beguiled because he doesn't have any fear of sin. He doesn't have any fear of, of when he came back and saw that Eve had eaten of the, of the fruit. He wasn't afraid to eat of it. He wanted to be with her. So he traded God for her. Yeah. But I said Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam ate it because the person he loved the most and wanted to stay with had eaten of it. And we see this failure in the Bible. The, the smartest man ever was Solomon. And a woman beguiled him and he set up false gods. Samson was the strongest physical man ever. And a woman beguiled him and he gave away his secrets. His weakness came upon him immediately. Am I right? So what God shows us is that he, he started Adam moving along this pathway and he crowned him, gave him all of humanity and all of the earth to rule over. And he gave it up. And he gave it to the adversary. He gave it to the enemy. That's because he had no idea how vicious the enemy was. So God wanted his son to understand the difference between the idea and the ultimate fulfilling of the issue. So Adam had to taste of sin. Because then he could appreciate what he came from and what he needed to get back to. Am I right? So he understood that, that terrible price that he gave away his victory. He gave away the crown. He gave away all the ruling. But God had a plan, and that was he was going to bring Jesus back. And John chapter 1 starts with the same words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now it doesn't say God created the heavens and the earth, the heaven and the earth. What it says is the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So now we have the beginning and we start with something deeper than just the creation. 
We start with something that's everlasting. Am I right? Because the Word is everlasting. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So what God started over again with is something of the Word, because the Word could get in me, and it could give me information and wisdom about myself that I wouldn't have to drop off the edge of sin in order to experience what it was that I needed to know. I could learn it from the Word of God. I could learn from the Word of God the things that God is telling me, and I could avoid those things that God doesn't want me to fall into. So you guys, that that beginning is different, because in the first beginning, it tells us ultimately by the third or fourth verse that God has said, let there be light, and there's light. Because you guys, that's the thing. In the midst of creation, in the beginning of creation, there's still darkness. And that's what Adam was in. He was in a darkness about his own beguiling. He was in his darkness about what authority he actually had and how important it was and how trading it off just to have a relationship with a person is is absolute uh, failure. Well, God knew we were moving that direction. And when God creates something, he actually creates it and you can see right away, wow, this is perfect, this is beautiful. The man's living in the garden, he's successful, he's got the tree of life, he's got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's not messing with anything, everything's perfect. Then he gets lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. And God says, you know, it's not right for this man to be alone. So let's make him a wife. So he puts him to sleep and out of his rib. You can't start with a better job than that, can you? Because you, you took and extracted his DNA. What he is, she is. She's a replication of his DNA, except for one thing. And that is her obedience. He doesn't have the, she doesn't have the same sense of obedience that he has. Because God made her separate. That's the precious thing about a woman and a man being, being in love, is that we're not exactly alike. And so there's a preciousness in that. But he takes this, uh, this whole success of Adam and, and makes Eve out of that success. Then the devil comes along and tells Eve, look at this. It's beautiful. God just is bad. He's just bad. He's mean. He doesn't want you to have all this stuff. And he certainly doesn't want you to have the knowledge. Because then he knows he's going to be like God. So, you guys, that's what you and I understand is that as God brings us through these places of the beginning, we understand that it looks great because when we come down to the book of Acts, we find the third beginning starts with Peter telling those people, this is the promise that God gave. And we are here at the moment of God's beginning because he's poured out the Holy Ghost on us. Now, you guys, the book of Acts is how Jesus acted. Yes? And it is meant to be a continuation of his people acting like he acted, doing what he did. A continuation so the world could always see that he is real. Not that he was real, but that he is now real. And so that was God's plan, is to bring us into a place where the Word dwelt in us, the light dwelt in us, and now the Holy Ghost dwells in us. So we have the teacher that takes the Word, and now it can't become a serpent. It cannot become a serpent out of the hand of the man of God. Because it's, it's embodied in the Holy Ghost. So when the Holy Ghost embodies the Word, which it did, it becomes the witness for the Word and it keeps it absolute truth. Now people can play with the Word of God, but the Holy Ghost won't vouch what they're playing with. The Holy Ghost will tell them, mm, 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 mm. you're adding that to the thing. You know you're adding that. I know preachers that there, are, there, that there are verses they know to stop at. They read down to a particular verse. They will not read the next verse because it refutes everything they're teaching. 
So they read down to that verse and then they just stop because here's my teaching. And you guys, then somebody raises their hand and says, what does that next verse mean? Oh, that next verse? That next verse means that if you drive into the city of Accra, past Akrami Circle, and take a left, and you stay on that left until you circle and circle and circle and find out to where you're at, then you'll understand that verse. And the truth is, you're going to have to stop and ask somebody, do you know where the beach road is? Because that's what they're telling you. You know what? That's just the way it is. So you and I are in this very precious place, you guys, that the Word of God has to bring its, its understanding to us. When I was in Honduras this time, these young brothers that are, that are coming to the Bible study, they, one of them is really, he's a little bit roughed up by religion. And he's got a lot of theology down pat. And so he's telling me about my theology about Jesus in the end times. And he's telling me that I need to answer his question about the sea that was dried up for three and a half years. Forty-two months. He said, so if what you're saying is true, then how did the sea get dried up for 42 months? I said, well, I don't know what people told you about the 42 months, but... Let's go back to Matthew chapter 1 because what God showed us about the 42 months is every time you get to 42 or 3 and a half or 1,260, it means something about God opening a door because Jesus is the door. And the children of Israel left Egypt for 42 encampments. You go back and read the Old Testament. They had 42 encampments from the time they left Egypt till they entered into the Promised Land. So Jesus is that door. That's why Matthew chapter 1 starts out with the genealogy of only 42 generations. When Luke tells you there's 42 generations from Abraham to David. Am I right? So we have to understand that God's talking about, you see, you can have these 42 encampments. And all Israel understood that because when you got to 42, the door was open. You're going into the promised land. Jesus is the door. That's why Matthew starts with the 42 encampments because every Jewish person that read that knew, wow, he's messing with the numbers because he intended to come up with 42. You know why? Because 42 is Jesus Christ. Here's your door. You can fight with it if you want. And if you think that, that we're just making that up about the encampments, go back with me to the book of Ezekiel when he sees the temple and he sees the door into the holy place, the only way into God. The only way into God. And the door is seven cubits by six cubits. So six times seven is what? Forty-two. So the door into God, the passageway into God is forty-two. So he's just telling us this is an open door. When you run into it in the Bible, those three things all mean something uh, about this opening up from God, and each one of them has a significance. Three, three and a half years, uh, 1,260 days, and then 42 months. But you guys, here's the thing. What I told that guy is, you, these guys tell you all kinds of stuff about that. But they're not telling you that when you read this there, there's a door opening here. A heavenly door is opening here. Something's going on, but God is bringing you into a transition out of what was into something that you've never seen before. That's all. And they can play with you all they want with their religion. But when you get down to what you know, what God laid the foundation from, go back to the Old Testament. It'll lay the foundation. The first time you see it, come out of there. And just keep using what God's Word says. Let the Word build the foundation. Let the Word of God tell you what's the truth. And that's what you and I want. So when God opened up the Holy Spirit and Peter could say, here's what we have. And you can go and read that with me. And then you're out of here. In Acts, the second chapter.
read down here a few verses. Acts, the second chapter, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Now, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the book of Psalms that Jesus wouldn't stay in the grave. The King James Bible uses uh, only the word hell for, for Gehenna and, and Sheol and, and uh, the three names for hell. So the Greeks had three different names. It's inexcusable that the Christian church still calls it hell. But anyway, uh, he said, you won't leave my soul in hell and neither will you allow your holy one to see corruption. So Peter is preaching to these people that Jesus was resurrected, therefore he didn't stay in the grave. And his flesh didn't rot. He was not corrupted. That's, that's what he's telling them, see? So verse 40, 29 says this, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Okay, well, let's satisfy that. He wasn't talking about himself. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. This is a fisherman. There's a fisherman that has never had teaching. He, he cannot read. The scriptures have never been in his hands. He's never held the scrolls. But he's walked with Jesus. And he's quoting from the Old Testament and he's quoting it verbatim. According to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to set on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. David spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Now, you guys, you see what I'm talking about, how the Bible had these hidden things in it? Because David just talks about, you won't leave my soul in hell and you won't allow me to see corruption. And he knew that that wasn't him. He's prophesying those things. And you guys, to people that read the Bible say, well, that's an error. David thought he was going to to not be buried and he was buried. So that's an error. It's not an error. He's a prophet and he's prophesying these things. And it took the Spirit, it took the Holy Ghost to reveal this to Peter. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. This is where he's, where he's bringing us into this beginning, where it's just like in the beginning was the Word. It's just like in the beginning God created because now the Holy Ghost is taking the Word and we are stepping into a brand new beginning. This is the success that the creation never was. This is the success that even with the Word of God, it needed the teacher of the truth to purify what God intended for the church to become. You couldn't just take the Bible, you couldn't just take the Word of God and end up with the right thing. You needed the Spirit of God to lead you through the thing and prepare it. And God gave us this understanding. And so Peter is saying, this is the beginning. This verse is just mixed among a myriad of verses here in this chapter. But it is the beginning for the church. The world was never the same. After the Holy Ghost, 120 people staggered out of that upper room and they were not what they were before. They were part spirit of God and part flesh. Am I right? In the book of Hebrews, it says that we are the offspring of God. You guys, the church doesn't talk about that because it's afraid to say those things because of the arrogance of flesh. Because flesh wants to assume because it's the offspring of God, it's got some godly thing. If you're the offspring of God, you're going to walk like Jesus walked. 
And when he was getting ready to be crucified, he had glory with the Father. But when he was getting ready to be crucified, he said, Father, restore unto me the glory that I had with you before. He didn't assume it was still his. You understand that? He didn't assume it was still his. He said, give it back to me. I laid it down. Now, I'm not going to take it back because I finished your work. I'm just asking you to restore your glory to me that I had with you. I am yours and I am bowing here at your feet to do exactly what you would have me to do. He gave his life a ransom. He allowed John the Baptist to baptize him. And you guys, that itself was a put down because John was saying only sinners need apply. If you're not a sinner, you don't need to come and confess. When Jesus came to confess, John said, I need to be baptized of you. He allowed himself to be identified with sinners. On the cross, he didn't, he didn't do some supernatural thing so everybody would know he was not an imposter. That was the obedience of God. And so these all things, all these things came to what looked like a defeat. That was no defeat. That was the glory of what God intended from the beginning when He created the heaven and the earth. And He had an Adam, a son that failed. He had an Adam that didn't fail. And Jesus came into the garden and He said, Listen, I've had an experience in a garden just like Adam had. But I will not fail. I'm going to lay myself down. I don't want to drink this cup. You can take this cup from me, but here's the thing. If you don't, I'm going to drink it. You guys, that's what God's bringing this church to through this revelation of the Holy Ghost. You and I have the, the success that God birthed into the Word inside of us, and we have the Holy Ghost to bring witness to the things He wanted to be. He wants it to say. He wants me to understand. I can say things to you and go away misunderstanding what I said. That's why we have Wednesday night Bible stage where you can ask questions. But you can go away misunderstanding what I said. But with the Holy Ghost, you cannot misunderstand what God said. You cannot misunderstand what God said. And that's why God said, this is the moment. And you guys, of all the great beginnings and all of the great creations and all the things that God had, this little verse 29 is hidden away where you almost don't notice it as being important. And yet He said, this is the promise of the Father. And it is this that's going to bring us into victory. It is this. Jesus told His disciples, go and wait till you're endowed with power from on high. The power to become what creation started in Genesis. Man operating in authority over the earth. That authority. That power. brought back through Jesus Christ. Not because you and I do something, but because He accomplished it. And because I believe it. And we're going back to what Abraham did to bless God. And that was he just believed God. He believed God. If God said this is true in me, then it's going to be true in me. And you guys, what you have to do is remind yourself this is true in me. I don't care what I feel like. This is true in me. God brought it to a truth in me. And I want His Spirit to, to bring it to the fullness. So He said this. Therefore, verse 30, let me read again. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh... He would raise up Christ to sit on His throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that His soul was not left in hell, neither His flesh did see corruption. So the Son that God prophesied that would set on David's throne and would build His kingdom was going to be murdered, was going to be killed. And God would have to resurrect Him to bring His Word to fullness in Him. Yes? Complicated, right? But it gets us past the flesh having... An ability to get these things done. You guys, in our walk with God, God's going to give you a job. Now listen carefully to me. God's going to give you a job. And the enemy is going to want you to give the job to the flesh. I'm just telling you. 
I don't care what your job is. When I had foster kids, the indication was that I should give this over to the flesh and start doing what the therapists and people were telling me to do and the doctors. And if I would have done that, I wouldn't have had a successful walk with those kids that I had in my house. I'll just be honest with you. In fact, the things that they said had no bearing at all on the success of those kids. None. And I can tell you that the Spirit and presence of God worked in their lives. And He's still working in their lives. But I didn't turn it over to the flesh. Not mine, not theirs, and not the therapists. I understood that what we needed was divine utterance from God. So he says this here. Verse 32, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath shed forth this, which you now see in here. This. Which you now see. This, is, this is Him finishing what He started on the day He made the earth. This is Him finishing what He did when Christ was born and the flesh became, the Word of God became flesh. It still wasn't finished. It still lacked an ingredient. And what that ingredient was, was the indwelling Spirit of the God who kept it truth and kept the flesh from exalting itself and kept the flesh moving along towards a line of perfection where it was perfect before God. Perfect before God. A surrendered life is perfect before God. That's just the way it was. Jesus talking at the woman at the well, talking to the woman at the well, is a perfect example of God's Spirit finishing in Christ Jesus what it would take the Spirit to fix. Because Jewish men did not talk to women, and Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritan women. And God said, talk to this woman. He said, give me a drink. And she's blown away by the fact he even talks to her. And she's so flattered because a Jewish man is so important. How dare you talk to me? You're too important to talk to me. And you ask me to get you a drink? First off, you're going to assume my cup is too dirty to drink from. Secondly, I'm going to have to dip my hands down in this water to pick it up. You're going to assume my hands are too dirty to give you a drink out of. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? The divine guidance of God was breaking barriers, and God said, go talk to the woman from Samaria. I've got something for her to do. And you guys, this is what the Holy Ghost did through Jesus. It was willing to do what God told it to do, to accomplish what God wanted Him to do. And then when His disciples came back, they're really concerned because he's talking to this woman. And he tells them, I don't need anything to eat. Then they're thinking, wow, what, has he eaten? But you guys, this woman goes off and wins people to God. This whole city gets turned upside down, upside down because she knows who he is. You guys, you cannot begin in the flesh. In, in Galatians chapter 3, he said, oh foolish Galatians. Having begun in the Spirit, are you made perfect in the flesh, God? does not want any work of yours to move into the flesh. Every pastor that I have seen that starts out with the Spirit of God leading him and then he moves into the flesh because people want him to do things the way that the guys do it, it becomes nothing. God departs. God leads. Either the Spirit leads you or it doesn't lead you. And either the Spirit reveals to you what's going on in these circumstances or He doesn't. And if He doesn't, go find out why He hasn't because He will. I'm just telling you. He knows how to do what He does. And that's what you want in your life. 
I'm still counting on the Spirit of God finishing in those boys what God started in them. I don't believe they came to my house by accident, but I believe they have to make choices and they have to make up their mind that they are not, they are not part of defeat. They're not, we've come from Adam's failure. They're part of the success. Jesus won the battle in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then He brought to us the power of the indwelling Spirit. And none of those young men that were in my house should ever be defeated by Satan because there is a power of authority from God that indwells us. And when God Himself sits on the throne of your heart, the devil cannot get to you. And so if we try to do this in the flesh, we're not going to do it. But if we're going to do it in the Spirit, God knows how to get it done. So I know that God does it. So he said this. First, yeah, First Corinthians chapter 2. Read with me. I told you you were getting out of here, didn't I? First Corinthians chapter 2. We've read this lots. Verse 1. And I, brethren... When I came to you, came not with excellency of speech. That's the best the flesh could do. And Paul was excellent at speech. Do not, do not minimize how intelligent this man was. This man was colossal genius. Colossal genius. And God didn't use it. He used the Spirit. He used the Spirit because the colossal genius kept popping up with ideas. And the Spirit kept leading past the ideas. You understand that? The victory was that God could take somebody who could grasp these things and run off on a tangent. And God could give him three words of revelation and stop him right there. And then wait another day. Came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And this man had excellency of wisdom. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He died for your victory. He shed His blood for your sin. But He resurrected that He could live inside of you and that incorruptible, incorruptible seed would become part of your mind. Am I right? You got birthed again. You were born again of incorruptible seed. The seed that's born inside of you is the mystery of the cross. God shed His blood for your salvation. He gave you His righteous flesh to cover your filthy flesh. And then He put inside of you he put inside of you this incorruptible seed that grows up that lived 33 years in the flesh and never sinned. If it did that in Jesus and He put that same seed inside of you, He can lead you through life without sin. That's what He was champion of. It's what He was champion of. Now you guys, Christianity holds itself to where it gives it to you to do what only God could do. No wonder we cannot preach perfection. Because you have a perfect seed inside of you that never failed. And when you understand that God put that seed inside of you, you are born of the Spirit of God. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is the great Apostle Paul. And he tells you, I was with you in weakness. Don't tell me that. When I come to you, I don't, I don't want you to tell me that you're, you're feeling weak at that moment. I don't want to know that. I don't want to know that you ever felt like that. I was with you in weakness and in fear. Okay, let's don't use fear. Surely there's a different word you could use. You were perplexed. I see you as perplexed. But I don't see you as afraid. 
And in much trembling, okay. Paul was with them. He identified with them. He was going through what they were going through. Going through what they're going through. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man and wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The demonstration of the Spirit and power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. You've got to listen to me. When you start dealing with any issue that God brings to you to do, He brings you a job to do, He brings you a work to do, He brings you something that is yours to do, immediately there's going to be this intrusion from the enemy to tell you from the flesh the wisdom on how to do what you're going to do. I am guaranteeing you that will happen. I guarantee you it will happen. And that's because it will take the victory away. It will just reduce it to nothing. And you can, you can labor on. You can keep doing what you do. But I've got to tell you, you will never have the success of the Spirit and presence of God doing what He does. Now, howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. We speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Evidently, there are some people perfect. Yet not the wisdom of this world. Nor of the princes of this world that come to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. There's a wisdom that God has given to us. And you guys, part of that wisdom is that there is a spirit man that's born of the spirit that will grow up into the full stature of the man Christ Jesus. And he lives inside of you. That's a mystery. The church doesn't talk about you getting born again in the spirit growing up inside of you to adulthood. For it doesn't yield to immature things. For it doesn't be, become beguiled because it isn't a full maturity. They tell you you're born again of the Spirit, but they don't tell you that that Spirit has to grow up inside of you. And you have to let it grow up inside of you. And it doesn't, the church don't tell you that the day you get born again, you're still a baby. And maybe six weeks later, you're still a baby. And maybe two years later, you're still a baby. Maybe three years later, you're still a baby. I know people that 16 years later were still babies because they were fed on nothing but milk on a diet of things that kept them with baby thoughts. And this wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, because we would receive revelation knowledge, verse 8 said, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's talking about the high priest in Israel. He's talking about Israeli uh, elders and leaders and high priests and Levites. And had they known it, and he calls them princes, had they known what, what it was that was the mystery, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. They didn't know what the mystery was. You and I need to know what the mystery is. That God's going to raise His church up into the full stature of the man Christ Jesus, and then the Jewish people that have not seen Him for 2,000 years are going to see Jesus in this church that's come to what? Perfect truth. Because Jesus isn't going to win the Jews to 500,000 Episcopalians, 200,000 Presbyterians, 900,000 Baptists, 700,000 Assemblies of God, where they all fight like the Christian church does. Because you won't know Christ if you know a bunch of theology. You only know a bunch of theology when you know a bunch of theology. But if you're going to know Christ, you've got to know the truth. Because He said, I am the truth. And that's why it's all divided. And that's why the church world is under such turmoil. Because we've got an adversary. We never figured out what his adversarial things were. And so we thought we could do things in the flesh and come out on top. You can't. You've got to have the Spirit and presence of God to bring us to the fullness of what God said. So he said this. Verse 9, you know these verses. But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, 
neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. God has prepared things for you that you haven't seen yet because you love Him. He has prepared things for you. Does that make you glad? It makes me glad. When I feel like life is boring, I come back and read this. Because God has prepared things for me. He's prepared things for you because you love Him. You guys, I prepare things for my children because I love them. I prepare things for Rachel because I love her. I prepare things for you because I love you. I want the Spirit and presence of God to do in you what only the Spirit and presence of God can do. But God, verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. I have not seen, you have not heard. Now it gets down here to 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. The church doesn't want to know anything about the deep things of God because they're afraid of somebody coming along teaching trash. And I've heard all kinds of trash. You've heard all kinds of trash. I want the deep things of God that come through the Holy Ghost that cannot lie. Verse 12 says, Now we have received, we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. If you've got the Spirit of God in you, you should be able to discern the things that God gives you. And what happens is your carnal mind will run you in a circle. Nope, this isn't God. You're just thinking that you're being blessed like this. Nope, this isn't God because God wouldn't say those kinds of things to you. God wouldn't build you up like that. God wouldn't try to say those things to you. That's your flesh accepting and assuming you guys, that's how the thought process runs around. This says that the Spirit will reveal to us those things that were freely given to us by God. And what it stops is the nonsense. So that's where I pray. God, oh, I want, I pray about this. Because God said, if I, if I want something, ask for it. I say, God, I want nothing but the truth. I want you to reveal to me what your Spirit has given to me. I don't want to assume something. I want you to show me what it is you want. So he said this. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. <clears throat> for what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. You have received the Spirit which is of God. And if you're not certain you have, go back and ask. God, I want to be certain I've received your Spirit. I want to receive your Spirit. That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. See, I keep saying that. That we might know the things freely given to us of God. You guys, if you think you've got to earn it, you're never going to pray for somebody lame. Because you'll never feel like you've earned a healing ministry. God freely gave it. He told His disciples, freely you have received, freely give. The reason the church doesn't operate in the spirit and presence of God is because they believe they have to somehow own it. This is freely gave. Jesus told His disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is saved and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. And in that is speaking with new tongues. Uh, you, you can lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. You can drink any deadly thing. It won't harm you. You can pick up serpents. You guys, by the time God gets through telling you, you're equipped to go all over the world. And you have freely received that that you could give to other people. Freely received. So when you start to pray for somebody and the devil tells you, well, I don't think you've earned this. 
I don't know that I've ever felt the kind of spirit of healing move on you. You go back to that verse. This was freely given to me of God. I didn't buy it. I didn't earn it. And then when the person's healed, you know what you know? You know what you know? I'm not worthy of any glory. You don't owe me anything because I didn't bring anything to this that had the power to do it. Those people that act like, yeah, I, I earned this. Yeah, I lived so righteous. Oh, yeah, I did all the stuff. Boy, when I got done. And that's how come you guys are all looking at me and going, ooh. But the natural man, verse 13, which things also we speak. These things have been freely given us to God. Now I'm back to verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. If you have a work that God has brought you, it must stay spiritual. You must get your information from God. If you get it from any other source than God, it becomes flesh corrupted. It just becomes flesh corrupted. And what you intend to do, you'll make mistakes doing because you're going to rein in with the flesh and get the flesh to get it done right. And the day you use your flesh to get yourself a plan, you went away from the Spirit and presence of God. God won't bless your little plan. He's not going to do that. It isn't the way God works. Listen to what He said. But which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I had a foster kid living in a room with no door. I've told you this before. I got a second foster kid. And he was rough. The, the state told me, his, his social worker told me, you're not going to get him because he's too violent. He needs to go to White Cat. You don't, you, we couldn't put this kid in a home. He'd been at a level five home in Lawrence. And they moved him out. The, the, for the people that worked there moved him out of that house because he was too violent. The man was, the man was afraid of him. And that's what he told the social services. I'm afraid of this kid. There's something comes over him. And when it does, he changes. And when he's changed, I want him out of my house. I mean, I want him out of my house. So then they were going to move him into my house because I asked for him. And his social worker said, no, this kid's too violent. I'm not going to put him in your house. She promised me. I sat in Topeka at a meeting because they were going to have a hearing on whether I could get him or not. And his social worker got furious at me. I was just sitting there minding her own business. And I was talking to somebody else, and I assume she was probably a social worker. I was just talking to them about this kid. And then she speaks up and she said, I'm going to promise you something. She said, you're not going to get him. You're wasting your time coming to this meeting. I'm going to see to it. You don't get him. He's too dangerous for you. And you're way out of your league. It's, it's over your head. I said, oh, okay. We went into that meeting, and there was a black gentleman there, elderly, and he was in charge of the whole thing. He's listening, man, this woman is dancing on the table, kicking a rug and, and just saying all kinds of things. And then finally he asked me to talk, and I talked just a couple of minutes about this kid. And the old man said, and he looked right at her, he said, actually, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put, I'm going to place this young man in, in uh, this man's home. And you guys, I took that kid home. And the other kid that was in my house was laying asleep at night, minding his own business, and this new kid came in and bit down in his face. And in the dark, he woke him up and he was looking right in his eyes. And he whispered to him, I just wanted you to know that I could kill you anytime I want. And then he went back to bed. The next morning, the kid I had in my room said, 
Pop, can I have a, a door to my room? And he, he didn't have a door. This is a, a farmhouse out on the other side of Lawrence on the Wakarusa River. There was no door on, on the two bedroom doors. There were three bedrooms and one had a door and two did not. And I didn't really want to put a door on his room because he came from the state hospital and, and he'd gotten some bad habits there. And so I thought, well, it would be better if I, bat, you know, if I walk past the room and I can look in and say, how you doing, buddy? And, and I can actually see in the room. If he shuts the door, then it's sort of like his room and he can do what he wants in there. So I thought, well, that's a good idea. I can look in and say hi. He said, can I have a door? And I said, you don't need a door. He said, yeah, I need a door. I said, I'm your door. So he said, well, well, could I have a door? I said, you don't need a door. I'm just telling you, you don't need a door. So he leaves, and the Spirit of the Lord tells me he needs a door. God spoke to me. He needs a door. So I went and got a tape measure, and I measured his door to find out what the exact width was. And I wrote it down in my mind. That's like a steel trap. And I, Angie, and so then, then I, I, I was working in Kansas City and I was cleaning up new house construction, new home construction. And anything that they wanted out of the building, out of the house, when they got done, they put in the garage. And I'd go in the garage and there'd be, there'd be boxes of unopened tiles and lights that had never been opened and, and stuff. And so, and I, and I kept leaving them and the guy called me and said, how come you're not taking the stuff out of the house? I want it out, I want it clean. I said, well, it was all good stuff. He said, when it's in the garage. It's going to the dump. I dumped it at my house. I still have a bunch of stuff that I could take you upstairs and show you. But here's the deal. My story continues because there was a door in the garage in the first house I went to. And you know how much it measured. Exactly the width of my door. Okay. Now, see, I still don't know that he whispered in his face, I could kill you any time. This kid needed a door. God knew he needed a door. Mm, see how God works? I didn't need I didn't need therapists to tell me he's got chronic problems. This guy's just got problems. He's got sleep problems. He grew up, you know. I mean, he's been at the state hospital. Of course, he needs a door. He's been locked up. He feels safe. I said, get him a door. I put that door on. Two or three days later, he told me. I, I asked him. I said, hey, how come you needed a door so bad? He said, because the first night that our friend was here, I woke up with him looking me right in the eyes. And he whispered to me, he wanted me to know he could kill me. I said, he what? He what? I said, oh, that's, I said, that's really interesting. Well, later on that day, we, we came together at the table. And this one young man sat next to me all the time because he's the first kid that came in new. And, and so he's sitting there. And this new kid comes in and looks at him, looks at the other chair. And I realized, wow, he's getting a signal. Get out of your chair and move. Then he says it verbally, get out of the chair, that's mine. I said, no, that's not your chair. And that thing came over that kid. And I could see the devil in his eye. I'm, I'm telling you, I could see the power of darkness in that place. And I stood up and I, I, I actually picked him up. I was looking straight at him and him and I had a discussion. And the whole time I'm holding him off the ground. And he's a big kid. And actually, I suddenly realized... I'm looking him straight in the eyes. I must be holding him up. So he left. I sat down at the table. The Lord said, go see what he's doing. He was trying to set the inside of my window on fire because a rope and a pulley ran through there and he wanted the fire back up behind the window where it would set this old farmhouse on fire. Do you think I got rid of him? No. You know what I got rid of? That spirit. I got rid of that spirit. 
And that kid and I worked really well together. That's how God is. God does that. And what the Spirit and presence of God does is when you move in the Spirit, God will talk to you in the Spirit. If you lean on the arm of flesh, you know what you're going to need? You're going to need fleshly instruction every day of your life until there's no life. That's the way it works. So you're going to have to get in tune with this spirit because there is indeed a creation and God started all things and it had to go through a whole bunch of bumps until it got man figured out for himself. You get that? Because you and I got to figure ourselves out. Then he came with the word become flesh and the word came down in the power of everlasting life. But we needed one more ingredient and that was an inborn leading of a spirit that wouldn't let us trash ourselves like the world. You need the Spirit of God. You need the presence of God. Let's stand together. I appreciate everybody staying this whole time. You are living in one of the most prolific mission fields that I know of. No end to what you do. Mission field. Lawrence is a mission field. Topeka is a mission field. Kansas City is a mission field. If you think Honduras is a great mission field, it is. But this is a great mission field. This is where you and I can agree to have the spirit and presence of God change our sense of how important our day is. If you do not believe that you're a missionary to Lawrence, your days can be boring. If you do not believe that the Word of God has to be planted inside of you so that you can win the lost in Topeka, your life will be boring. If you do not know that you've been drafted, if you got your draft notice and you read it and it said greetings, but you didn't pay any attention to the fine print that you have to report. And what you have to report for is not your job. You have to report for training. Now that would be church. And if you are looking at church as sort of a thing where you hear good stuff, that's not training because you're not paying attention to what I'm doing all the time. If you're paying attention to what I'm doing all the time, you're finding out that I do hands-on with the Word of God in the lives of people who've heard it but not really understood what it was telling them to do. The instructions got lost somewhere between me telling and them receiving. So I work until it's finished. And I don't actually start the work. God will start it. I will preach something on Sunday. And Monday you will have a circumstance pop up in your life that is exactly what we preached on Sunday. And you will fail to pass the test of did I remember what Sunday told me to do on Monday. And by Wednesday, you'll be in the dilemma. And by Thursday, you're calling me. And it's the perfect opportunity because now we can reiterate what it is that God was talking to you about on Sunday that would give to you that overcoming faith. Yes? Yes. Yes. So, so when I say that you really are the saints of God, I believe that, that God can move through you because He would freely give to you everything He wants to do to show the world He's real. And He's not a respecter of persons, men and women. He said in the last days, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters. So none of you are in here outside what God can use. But you want to understand that actually today I realized what I'm for. I am for the salvation of the people around me. I may go to a foreign country, but right now I'm here and this is where I will practice. And I need the will of God in my life to do the things that God had me to do. You can't live for the world and win the lost. You can't, you can't obey your flesh and win the lost. So I'm going to pray that God will give you a sense of, 
of rejecting the, the demands of your flesh, and that, that God will give you that faith that says, I have overcome the world. God, in the name of Jesus, God, give us this certainty of authority from you against obedience to our own flesh. Because, God, our flesh will deceive us and try to get us under a dominion other than you. You've given us liberty to live. You've given us liberty to have joy. We don't need an outside thing to give us joy. But, God, we need direction. And we want your direction in each of our lives. God, around us is a lost world. And us studying your word is for the very purpose of winning the lost. And, God, we can do that as soon as we're born again because we know the secret thing. And that is... Confess your sins because we did it. And you will answer because you did answer and because you indwelt us. Now, we can be witnesses to that in the whole world and nobody can take our witness away. No intelligent professor can take away from us the reality of our own salvation because we were there when it happened and we are witnesses to the fact. God, give us that. Start us on this journey. Open our eyes to the joy of the fact that you have actually asked us, could we yield to you? And could you win the loss through us? And could we see you turn people's lives like you did the woman at the well? Through us. God, do that. In us and through us. In your name we pray. And God, give us an awareness of having been drawn into your army that we would be ready, God, to prepare for this task that lays in front of us unafraid and unmoved by the assault of the enemy or the boast of the enemy. God, in your name we pray. And Lord, let none of us Move in the flesh to do the things that you've called us to do in the Spirit. God, we want to pray for answers. We want to pray for answers. We don't want man's answers. We want to pray for our answers. You're our God who gives us answers. God, your name we pray. Amen and amen. All right. Lord bless you. Go in peace. And we'll see you Wednesday night as the Lord permits. Bring a question. Bring a question. All right. Lord bless you. Go in peace.